science fiction, like all fiction, uh, allows people to enlarge their imaginations and just just really push back the boundaries of what they think of as possible. Hello and welcome to Password123, a cyber podcast produced by UNSW Canberra. In this podcast, we explore a range of topics from the world of cyber and speak to some of the most influential figures in the InfoSec community. My name is Tom Sear and I'm an industry fellow at UNSW Canberra Cyber at the Australian Defence Force Academy. In this episode of Password123, we sit down with renowned author John Birmingham to discuss his new book, Zero Day Code, set in a world where dwindling global food supplies are under increasing pressure from worsening droughts, floods and extreme weather events. John Birmingham worked as a researcher for the Defence Department, but left to write features for magazines in the decade before publishing, he died with a falafel in his hand. He was a contributing editor for Rolling Stone, Playboy and won the National Award for Nonfiction with Leviathan, an unauthorised biography of Sydney. You can find more information about John at cheeseburgergothic.com and the audio-only book Zero Day Code is available at audible.com.au. John Birmingham, how would you describe the, this particular story? Uh, look, it's, uh, it, it's basically a, a sort of... Um, it's a it's a techno thriller, uh, and it's about a, a a cyber war that you know gets a little out of hand. To to be honest, it's really my um, homage to Stephen King's book The Stand, which was the first novel I ever bought with my own money when I was a kid. I mowed some lawns or or something, and you know got about five or six bucks together in in sort of nineteen seventies dollars and walked down the hill to. Um, I think it was Target in those days was the you know, closest shop that had books, and uh, I had no—I'd never bought a book, and you know, I, I had no idea what I was looking for. But I wandered in, and you know, Stephen King's uh, novel of the apocalypse called *The Stand* was sitting there, and it was—it was—it was as big as a house brick, and um, that was why I bought it because you know I wanted value for my five or six bucks, and there seemed to be, you know. Words per dollar uh, seemed to be a pretty good ratio with this bloke, so I picked it up and I read it. And it it's 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 a book about a pandemic basically that wipes out most of the human population, and it's um, and of course they bed Stephen King. Lots of spooky stuff happens as well, but uh, it's 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 almost become a sort of cultural touchstone. It's hugely popular still, and I think Netflix is doing a like a four part adaptation of it um which is gonna drop in the the next year or so but anyway i, I love that book I, I read it heaps of times when i was a kid and i've i've always wanted to do my own variation on it and i didn't want to do spooky stuff and i didn't didn't want to do a plague um so you know sort of the you know, the way the human mind works you know, i can't do that virus let's do another virus and and so i started uh thinking about you know we're very dependent on digital technologies now. Like, you know, how could I use that? I could actually use it to tip over a, a civilization. And um, so I started doing some research on uh, resilience, particularly of 
uh, like post-industrial urban civilizations, like big cities. And, and as soon as I got into that, I, I realized um, it, it, they're funny. Like big, big modern cities, they're very, very resilient. I was in Brisbane in uh, 2011 when the floods came through. And, um, you know, it, that, that's actually a bit of a, bit of a triumphant story, the way that the various, you know, organizations of the state and, uh, you know, uh, uh, private citizens all came together and figured out, well, you know, this wall of water's coming, it's going to shut this place down for six or seven days, what are we going to do? And so, you know, they handled it. And the, th- the, the reason the city came through was that, of course, there's a massive hinterland, you know, there's... <clears throat> lots of, you know, the population in southeast Queensland and then you've got like, you know, the state behind it and then the country behind that. So, uh, you know, there was always going to be support even as the, you know, river flooded into the, the, the centre of the CBD and started crawling up the, the bottom floors of all the high-rises. Um, so what I needed to do was have a look at how you take that, that hinterland out and one of the, the, the sort of early discoveries I made w- was about the vulnerability of um, modern food distribution systems. So in, in Australia, you've got Coles and Woolies, uh, you know, mostly responsible for moving most food onto the, the dinner table. Uh, and uh, in the US and the UK, uh, which is relevant because you've got Brexit coming up a couple of weeks after we do this recording, um, you got these very, very uh, tightly integrated, um, vertically integrated uh, businesses for moving, you know, produce from the farm gate or the food factory, whatever, to the the dining room table. So in America, for instance, you've got about uh, about three companies who control. I think it's like eighty five percent of the market for. Um, for food and you know that that's fresh food and it's you know frozen breakfast burritos any kind of nutrition uh it it's it's controlled by these three and so they have what they tend to do is they, they have big food warehouses on the edge of cities depending on the size of the city you might have one like medium-sized warehouse or you, you know a place like la or new york you might have a, a dozen of these things a lot of them are like robotized. So, you know, when you, um, when your owner, when your Woolies manager says, oh God, I've run out of breakfast burritos, you know, send me some more. Uh, whoever, you know, whichever of these three companies is supplying them will, you know, just tell the robot, go get a pallet of breakfast burritos. And it's like, like grabs them, puts it on the truck and off the truck goes. So like, Instantly, I was thinking, well, if you could get into the stock management systems, which are all computerized nowadays, and you can mess those stock management systems up, um, you'll you'll shut those warehouses down for a while. And then I said, actually, no, you can, you can do better than that. You can shut those warehouses down for ages because the ones that are basically run by a robot workforce, you can put something like a Stuxnet virus in the ones that... Uh, uh, you know, the NSA put into the Iranian centrifuges to bugger up their um, their enrichment process. So you know, that that code, like a lot of code from the NSA, has leaked out into uh, the black market. And so, yeah, you, know, you grab some of that and you throw it at 
the um, the servers controlling these warehouses, and so instantly, you know, you got robots tearing apart warehouses rather than delivering delicious breakfast burritos. Um, but also, you can do things like aggressively randomise the data about what they have in stock, and then you can lock up those files with military grade encryption, so that even if somebody can break them open when they do open them, you've got garbage. And so instantly what happens is you've got maybe two, 250 food warehouses which have either been torn apart or, you know, nobody can find anything. And that's, that's pretty bad, you know, that, that, that would be a major inconvenience um, on the face of it. In fact, it's, it's a disaster because the way that uh, we run our... Um, our retail sector now, it's all, it's all sort of configured to deliver uh, product to the shelves at the very last moment that it's needed. It's called just-in-time. You can sort of Google up the term. It's, it was a, uh, a sort of stock management system that was invented by Toyota in the, the 1970s, I think. And the idea was that, you know, if you've got a warehouse full of, you know, rubber wiper blades... Um, you're basically paying to keep those blades on the shelves. And, you know, why would you be paying for 5,000 square feet of warehousing when you really only need 1,000 square feet as long as the, you know, the wipers are delivered just before they're needed? Um, it was a, it's one of the major revelations in, you know, or, or changes in them. Um, in uh, business practice in the West in the last 50 years. It's like as important as, as shipping containers. But what it means is that our food distribution systems are vulnerable, really, really vulnerable. So if you can get in and disrupt them, uh, you can actually starve not just entire uh, cities, but entire countries. So most modern cities have about, because of just in time, have about three days worth of food on the shelves. Um, and of course, if there's panic buying, that three-day horizon collapses to a couple of hours. So in zero-day code, uh, what happens is the um, uh, the Chinese government, which is having real issues feeding its own citizens because there's been like you know six or seven years of climate change-driven drought. And also, you know, if you look at, the Chinese agricultural sector, it's a mess because they have, they've basically chewed up a lot of their arable land for urban development and uh, factories. And I think it's, I was looking at the figures earlier today, they got about, you know, they got 25% of the world's population, but they've only got 7% of the world's arable land. And of that sort of small sliver of land, 40% of it has been severely degraded because of, um, uh, you know, over fertilization or like toxic leaks from factories which have like spread all over the landscape. And they've got some real problems with food security coming at them in the next probably 10 or 15 years. That's why they're buying up cattle stations in Brazil and dairy farms in um, New South Wales. So uh, the premise of the book is that you know, they, they're basically running out of food um, and they've been importing it from, uh, as they do now, from Southeast Asia, places like Thailand, Malaysia, and, you know, from us too. Uh, but in the book, 
because there's been you know drought and uh, 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 you know basically drought will do it. Um, there's not much food around, and so the you know uh, Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia, they go look. We can't export our rice anymore. Our own people are going to go hungry if that's the case, and we can't have that because they'll. Um, They'll revolt, and so they they refuse to export it. And this is a real world concern. Like um, as you and I are sitting here talking now, India banned the export of onions about forty eight hours ago uh, for the same reason. You know, they've they've had problems with their their onion crop, and um, it was getting to the point of you know looking at food rights because uh, the price of onions was going up, and so they just banned exports, and that that solved the problem for them. But it now means that overseas countries that were reliant on that source of nutrition um, going a little hungry. So in the book, I just, you know, amp that up and they decide that, you know, they're basically going to take that food. So, you know, they're going to grab up the territory in those uh, those countries. But of course, they can't have the you know, US 7th Fleet intervening in that. So the, the miscalculation is that if they just put, you know, a couple of couple of viruses into you know the um the food distribution system it will cause a lot of chaos it'll tie the americans up and they can get away with you know grabbing up the um you know the the delicious rice patties of of thailand and vietnam and of course it all goes sideways because uh they're not thinking in terms of the really critical vulnerability of um of our food distribution system. They put the uh, the virus in and you know, they do it as part of a, a sort of broad spectrum cyber attacks. You've got lots of other stuff happening as well. Um, uh, for example, they collapse the financial system, um, uh, not by sort of getting in and, and hacking the banks because their um, uh, their security is pretty good, but you don't have to. So uh, one of the things that they do, I talk a lot, don't I? One of, one of the things that they do is, um, you know, they write some code to scrape real-time data from, uh, say, half a dozen news sites, so, you know, uh, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, um, Reuters, whatever. And they, having grabbed that real-time data, they then mirror it on their own service. So they, they effectively create their own version of the New York Times and then on the front page they insert a story about a run on a bunch of banks. <coughs> they do that across these six or seven um, <coughs> uh, publications and then they just release it into the wild at the same time as they're you know, releasing other stuff as well and it just uh, it, it propagates very, very quickly as these things would and as more and more people uh, hitting up links on Twitter and Facebook. Hey, I read this story about a run on the banks. Um, search engines like Google then began to prioritize links to the black servers rather than links to the actual servers. And you get a run on the banks because you've got a run on the banks. Um, so there's like, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff like that in the book. And uh, it was it was great fun to um, to play with in, in the way that, you know, breaking things and hurting people can be on the page, but uh, it is, you know, I've just been in Canberra for a couple of days talking with, um, you know, actual professionals in the national security sector and it, it, would, it will be a real problem if we get to the, uh, the point of throwing malign code at each other. 
Yeah, so like at UNSW Canberra Cyber here at Adfa, we we uh, we worried about this problem. Um, so we run events with um, our friends and colleagues at NATO in the United States, and um, with the Information Warfare Division um, in Australia with Marcus Thompson mm. um, to try and sort of war game what could happen in an, in an event like this. And I guess we talk about sort of multi-wave, multi-vector, um, ongoing cyber attacks and or um, sequenced uh, cyber sort of storm events, I suppose. Mm. And that's sort of like Greg Conti in the United States does some great work on how would you sequence something like that. And that's how you might use deep fakes to, to say yep. blackout and then suddenly there's the president in a deep fake bang when you turn the media back on, um, things like that. But I mean, there's probably other other ideas you you probably thought of yourself in the book um, about what you could do with Facebook or how mm. you could send messages to people and yeah, well, it's just if you just want to, you know, sow a bit of <coughs> um, chaos and madness through the mobilisation process, uh, you, 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 your listeners might recall there was a massive hack on the Office of Personnel Management in the US uh, about four or five years ago, um, and what that did was grabbed up the, um, you know, the the personnel records of pretty much anybody who'd ever been paid by the um, by the feds. So, you know, all of the civil servants and of course all of the military. And, and the way human beings work, they, you know, if you want to get into somebody's Facebook account, um, you know, their, their login is probably going to be their email address, which, you know, is pretty easy to, um, to work out in a lot of cases if they work for a particular uh, institution or branch for service or something. And then you know, people are bloody hopeless with passwords. Like the most common password in the world is password and uh, or P word. Um, and then, you know, the next most common are the names of pets and, um, you know, spouses and stuff like that. And so by having, you know, access to that Office of Personnel Management data they've got this trove which they can mine for keys to get into people's other accounts so you know one of the things that um they did in the uh, the book was they just got into the facebook accounts of you know, hundreds of thousands of u.s service personnel who were married and they changed their relationship status from married to uh it's complicated you know that very very simple thing to do uh that's that's going to cause a huge amount of personal chaos in your uh in your personnel um yeah so you, you can just there's subtle ways to weaponize i guess the information space mm. and and i guess do things which is not really outright war uh but has the effect of taking out the opposition without even really saying we'll go to war you go to war i guess um only after you've won it i guess is probably yeah well, that's right well in this book they they don't want to go to war their, their, their entire strategy is devised to avoid going to war um because they you know they, they can't afford it they they need to stop the americans from spooling up their fleet and sailing to to intervene and you know as so often happens in human conflict they uh they miscalculate and so, you know, they, they launch this attack thinking that it's, um, it's going to, you know, cripple or degrade their enemy and it ends up just, you know, sweeping their legs out from underneath them completely. Yeah, I guess like, that's one thing we're thinking a lot about in Cyber at the moment. And Andrew Dwyer, um, 
at um, Oxford and Bristol, um, he talks a bit about Stuxnet actually, which we were just mm. talking about how um, really code is in itself uh, is an actor and a player in a sense in any information environment and it will escape yep. and it will do things you don't expect it to do. And so when we think about security, we need to be thinking that, we, well, we're in a sort of ecology of multiple actors and one of those is a code, as mm. you're suggesting in the book title now. Yeah, um, and also we tend to, um, when you have the idea of a threat, particularly if it's coming from a hostile state actor, uh, we tend to militarise our thinking about that response. So, you know, there is this actual critical vulnerability within Western society. You know, we've got these vertically integrated food distribution systems run along just-in-time principles. Um, it's not really the job of the ADF to secure Coles and Woolies servers. You know, that, that's the job of their IT section. But they're not necessarily going to do that because, you know, the reason they adopted just-in-time practices is because it's really profitable and it works. And so you have a sort of wider policy discussion. This, this you know, it's really nothing to do with the book now. We have a, we have a policy discussion we need to have around the digitization of everyday life, which is that where does responsibility lie for securing what is effectively national infrastructure. So, you know, in, in times of war, for instance, you, you secure your ports and your airports and, you know, maybe initially that falls to, I don't know, reserve army units or something and, you know, eventually devolves to a sort of expanded police force. But, you know, who secures the digital infrastructure? Um, and, you know, what steps can you take beforehand to harden up that infrastructure? So for a, an example I'd like to use is the, uh, the WannaCry um, virus of, it was really a shakedown um, of, a, I don't know, about 18 months ago, something like that. It looks like it was carried out by North Korea as effectively a ransomware attack because, you know, those boys are skint. They're always looking for a way to make money. And so they got a hold of a, um, a, a tool which looks like it had, you know, somehow shaken itself free from the NSA's vault. And uh, you know, they, they rewrote it and put it out in the world. And I don't, think it, I don't think it got them as much money as they wanted to because that security researcher, you know, discovered the, the kill switch on it and shut it down pretty quickly. But one of the interesting things about the effect of WannaCry in Australia is that it didn't go as far or bite as deeply as it did overseas. And it seems to be, and some people are going to laugh at this, but it seems to be because the IT sections of most um, government agencies in Australia were actually pretty good at, at you know making sure security patches were kept up to date and OSs were were kept up to date and so they were able to withstand that viral attack uh, a lot better than you know, places in the US and the, the UK. Yes and um, patch your systems uh, people and uh, look for those old servers which in the case of the ANU um, incident report just came out yesterday and when you read through that report, it was as a result. It was what was vulnerable was there was an old, must have been an old crusty server sitting somewhere that 
needed an upgrade and no one had got to it yet mm. um, that was able to run, run XP on it and um, all the requirements they needed were there in that, that pretty little server sitting which no one had sort of thought, oh, maybe we should patch that. I oh, will get to that. Yeah, that's um, right. And so with the APM hack, as with the APM hack, there's now a massive trove of data of anybody who's you know ever had anything to do with ANU sitting you know on a what I imagine is a very secure server somewhere. I don't think they they, they didn't lay blame, did they? <laughs> there was no <laughs> attribution to a specific nation state. No. Yeah. So. Um, but you, uh, you have speaking of Canberra. So you've been here the last couple of days, um, mm. and I understand you've been uh, um, assisting uh, um, those of us uh, in the Australian government and the and the security sector in Canberra about how you would build a uh, or how you build not simulation so much, but how you would build a scenario. Yeah, scenario things. training. So how would you think something through? So how do you go about? doing that if you don't give your trade secrets way too much. No, it's not my trade secrets. I stole them from someone else. Right. Um, it's, it, was pre- it, was, it was a pretty weird gig, i got to say. It was, it was effectively giving writing classes to uh, public servants and you know, national security operators. And um, I mean, that sounds a bit weird, but it turned out to be a really valuable uh, exercise because you know, these guys, they they have to write scenarios as part of their um, as part of their job, and sometimes that's you know for a training course, uh, a war game. Um, sometimes it is a process that they go through to you know sort of try and enlarge their imagination uh, as regards you know various policy options that they might suggest to um, to government. So. They do need to know how to write scenarios, and scenarios are just stories in the end. They're narratives. Um, you know, they're directed, and they they have very particular purposes, uh, which are quite different from you know the reasons I write narrative, which is you know to pay my bills. Um, but in the end, the tools that I use can you know very very easily be picked up and used by by them as well. So I, I took them through. Uh, you know, a writer's tool set, things like, you know, description of scenery and use of dialogue and point of view and context and stuff like that. But also what, the thing that was really valuable because um, it, it gave them a path to follow when they were constructing their scenarios was to look at the, um, the beat structure that screenplay writers use. If you, if you look at a, a movie like... I don't know, The Matrix or Shrek or uh, what was one I saw the other day that would be relevant to your audience? It was uh, Danger Close. I watched that the other day. It's a surprisingly good movie. Um, but if you look at the, the sort of the narrative structure of those movies, they tend to follow the same path. And, you know, this isn't a writing podcast. So I, I won't go into it. But, you know, uh, what I did was took the beats, the story beats that you get within, uh, often within a, a movie or a TV episode or even a TV series uh, and increasingly in, in books because um, novelists are starting to adopt these tools as well. And I said, like, if you can, if you can sort of use this as uh, a roadmap and you just sort of lay your scenario down along this path, it'll be a lot easier for you to write 
and it'll mean that you're not, you know, basically you're not sitting there staring at a blank screen thinking, oh, God, what do I do now? Um, but also this is a sort of, you know, this structure and this format is sort of proven uh, to be, what would, you, what would you call it, attractive, I guess, to, to listeners and viewers. Like, you know, we, we, we're a narrative species. We like stories. And um, there are certain ways of telling them that uh, we respond to with a lot more enthusiasm than otherwise. So that's, that's effectively what I was doing. I, I, I gave them this tool for telling stories and then led them through um, a bunch of uh, exercises where they, they made up the stories. And I, I got to say, I was very impressed. There was uh, a bunch of them that uh, I went through the exercise with on, on Wednesday and they were from all over government. You know, there was a lot of national security people there. There was also people from agriculture and treasury and, you know, um, you know, social departments, I guess, I guess you call them. <clears throat> and they, they did really good work. They, they did really compelling scenarios that I was thinking by the end of it, I'm going to steal some of these ideas and pitch them to Netflix. <laughs> well, that's good to know. Maybe we can, the APS can start generating its own Netflix uh, channel and, <laughs> Because apparently Australians are more interested in um, watching Netflix than they are watching Australian politics, which maybe makes sense, but um, perhaps that's something we should be thinking more generally of in the government. Perhaps you should have your own department. Um, I, I guess you've also been down because you've been working uh, on a – the Australian Defence Force put on a, a science fiction and the future of war seminar mm. uh, yesterday, uh, which you spoke at and there were some other esteemed writers at. And um, so uh, – I mean, it's sort of in the uh, in the air at the moment. How do, can science fiction assist us in either planning or conceptualising, or even uh, sort of bridging the uh, imagination gap or the failure of imagination that mm. so many other threats and so on in, have, have sort of blindsided societies? Uh, so, I mean, what's your view about that? Or um, there's, there's two things. I mean, there has always been a feedback loop between um, science fiction. And science and technology, and the um, uh, the if you go back and you you look at some of the sort of um, battlefield surprises of the the, the past one hundred years, uh, you know, submarines, ironclads, tanks, paratroopers, uh, they were all often predicted a decade or two decades earlier by a fiction writer. H.G. Wells, you know, predicted an awful lot of um, how 20th century warfare would uh, would play out. And not just 20th century warfare, but the the sort of strategic and, and political implications of things like weapons of, of mass destruction. Um, so that was uh, part of, you know, part of what I was doing in the, the, the panel discussion I took part in was just talking through the history of how imagined works of, of science fiction have led, um, you know, actual scientists and technologists to you know, develop real-world applications, usually about 10 or 15 years later. That happens all the time. And, in fact, that process is accelerating. Uh, there's been a lot of research done the last I don't know, 10 years or so as data analytics tools have become more sophisticated um, and researchers have begun to 
examine the research archive looking sort of deeper and deeper within it for examples of uh, scientific papers that cite works of science fiction as you know inspiration or which use them to frame their own um, you know research architecture and uh, they found there's plenty of examples of it but interestingly there's more and more examples of it as you get into the the modern day so it seems to be a process which is accelerating uh, the other the other aspect of it which I think is what um, you know, Major General uh, Ryan was was interested in was the sort of way that science fiction, like all fiction, uh, allows people to enlarge their imaginations and just just really push back the boundaries of what they think of as possible. And uh, for a you know from the 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 perspective of a warfighter, that's important because, you know, when you're surprised on the battlefield, it's usually a prelude to getting killed a few seconds later on. And so, you know, the less surprises that, that, that you have and the more that you can impose on your enemy, the better. And um, I, you know, I, that was the first one of those symposiums, I think, that, that has been run. And I, I think as... You know, if, if he does more of them in future, and as far as I know, they're intending to, they will probably try and move from the general to the specific um, in terms of, you know, getting people within the, the armed forces to uh, use the work of, 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 of SF authors as a tool to conceptualise their own work. So yeah, I mean, I, um, P.W. Singer, um, as you know, his books mm. like War, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, way back, to way back the early two thousands about mercenaries and so on. Um, he was I spoke to him on this podcast earlier in the year, and I was sort of asking him like, well, I was suggesting yes, we're going to have to develop a way to uh, for people like yourselves and him to be essentially developing not not even training but high level courses on precisely how you th would think that way and how would you begin to think that way and, and teach people to think that way, both in terms of forward planning and even perhaps even more um, in closer temporal scales. Mm. Um, so I'd be interested to hear from you how you think we should go about designing those types of activities, I guess. <coughs> that's a pretty good question because, you know, that's not in my wheelhouse at all. Like I'm, I'm pretty good at making up stories and I'm, you know, I'm okay at teaching other people how to do them. But then how do you formalize that process? It's, that's, really, that's really a question that you know, you'd be looking to professional educators to work out. And you know, um, mainstream educators, people just in, in, in normal universities and, and high schools, but also... You know, people responsible for specifically for military education, which is, you know, slightly different in in many ways. Um, I, you know, just sort of just scratch my head and stare off into the the middle distance. Um, I think you probably need to bring those two groups together to to thrash it out over, you know. Uh, it would almost be like a writer's room, 
you know, when, you, when you're working at a TV show, uh, what normally happens is you have a premise that you want to explore. Um, you'll pick half a dozen writers that you think will be, you know, simpatico with that premise. You stick them into a room, you fill it full of pastries and coffee and, you know, you have a big whiteboard and you let them go. Uh, it, it might be initially as simple as that, but I, I think the, the people who would need to run that process would be the educators rather than the writers because they're the ones in the end who have to take the tools and, you know, apply them in the, in the classroom. Yeah, because, I, because Singer's writing a book, him and August Cole are writing the next book at mm. the moment, and I was annoying him to, to please show his working, I guess, as an mm. academic, he'd say, could you demonstrate your process as you proceed, keep footnotes very explicitly in relation to each object, um, and I don't know whether I convinced him or not, but it probably wouldn't actually work. Like your process, his process, August Cole's process, it's probably, it's in the moment, you need to actually produce, you're not... Academic, one of the most annoying things about academics, of course, is using the footnote. It interrupts your flow. You have to reference, reference, reference. And so I don't know whether that, like, if you were writing, you know, zero-day code, could you have done that or that would have been? Oh, look, effectively I, I did in right. some ways because um, I didn't intend to write this for, for Audible. Um, I had no intention of bringing it out as an audio book exclusive. Uh, that just happened because they, you know, paid me. Right. Um, originally, it was a pure experiment. It, it, it wasn't my main uh, gig that I was working on. I, as I said, I, I wanted to write a, a homage to the, the Stephen King book, The Stand. And um, when I started to think about doing that, I thought, you know, I, I wouldn't mind experimenting with it. One of the things that's happened in, in my line of work the last uh, 10, 15 years has been a lot of disruption. Um, you know, I, I, had, I had two lines of work. I, I worked in the media. I do, used to write feature articles for magazines and I wrote books for publishing companies. Both of those industries have been shattered by digital technology. Like most of the magazines I worked for have closed Um and, you know, the, the book industry has undergone massive changes, partly because of the arrival of Amazon um, and the rise of the ebook, but, but also because people's attention spans are now being attacked by, you know, uh, handheld gaming systems, uh, infinitely sort of deep catalogues of streaming TV and movies and, you know, uh, streaming music. You know, you've now got 30, 40 million songs available in your pocket with a, a Spotify or an Apple Music um, subscription. So getting people to, to actually, you know, commit to sitting down and, and reading a book is, uh, uh, it's, it's tougher than it used to be because they got more options now. Um, so I was looking at experimenting with you know, new forms of writing books and one of the one of the things I thought I might do is you know set up a patreon page so that people could watch me write the book they could watch the book um, emerge in real time and uh, not only that but I would write essays every couple of chapters about, you know, what I'd done and why I'd done it and what was the technical reason for, you know, putting, you know, 
this character in that arc or whatever. And there was a bunch of other stuff I was going to do as well. Um, I was looking almost at a sort of transmedia approach. So, you know, maybe setting up Facebook pages and, you know, websites associated with it. I didn't end up doing that stuff because, as I said, Audible just bought it and it's like, right, well, I'll write an audio book. Um, uh, but, yeah, I, I, I effectively did what you were um, asking for, which was uh, catalogued the progress of the book but also explained pretty much every step of that progress and, and, and how it all came together. Um, that's, you know, that's not tooting my own horn. There's, there's lots of people doing other things. Uh, Lee, Lee Child, the crime writer, who's way more successful than me, he's got this academic who follows him around taking notes on his process. And this academic has published, I think, two books now, which are almost like the making of a Lee Child novel. Right, okay, right. So, um, well, if we see that job advertised for you, then I guess many listeners probably want to apply uh, to, to illustrate that process of yours. Um, so, uh, well, because obviously for me, that would be very useful in terms of, as an educator, that would actually be incredibly useful uh, to have you articulate as you as you move along through the process, certainly. Um, but in, you, you mentioned like that uh, sort of narrative is a upper hominid kind of cultural tray. Mm. Um, and you mentioned there's some, some forms by which narrative is transformed by digital disruption in particular. Um, if, if we were to have a science fiction of narrative into the future, what do you think it will, if we were to use that same technique to think about what narrative will be conveyed to humans in, I don't know, within 50 years, I guess, how do you think we'll... <sighs> Mate, I don't know. I mean, that's, um, that's actually really difficult because, uh, you know, we don't know what, what forms narrative will take. I, um, I, I suspect the old forms survive because old forms of media rarely completely disappear. Um, uh, like compact discs, for instance, have sort of, you know, I think, no, no, I, that's, I, know, I know the data point that I'm, I'm sort of groping through the dark for. Uh, I saw a, a story the other day that vinyl records had outsold compact discs for the first time in, in 25 or 30 years. And, and the reason is because this is sort of like analog, um, you know, freak contingent who just have decided they like listening to, you know, old records. And uh, so people have moved to, to supply that, that market segment, whereas no one's listening uh, to CDs anymore. They're abominable. Uh, and so, you know, you've, but, you know, maybe CDs won't, won't survive, but, you know, records have survived and, you know, radio survives and TV survives and movies survive. So those things will all be there, but there will be different, um, different forms of expression. So, uh, you know, maybe VR becomes a new type of media. Uh, we, were, we were talking about this the other day, like if you actually developed truly immersive VR, um, it would probably end up being horrifically addictive. And, you know, because people would obviously prefer to spend time 
in you know the much nicer imagined world than you know deal with either the banality or the ugliness of the you know the world in which they gotta pay bills and turn up to work. Um, so you know we all know how addictive video games can be. So just just make them about ten times more immersive and a hundred times more addictive, and you know, you, you've got a recipe for what you know VR fiction might look like fifty years from now. Um, Maybe, you know, you push a little bit further out and you look at technology like uh, the Neuralink systems that Elon Musk is trying to develop. Like, at the moment, that's all very, very primitive because, you know, our understanding of the human brain is still pretty primitive and, you know, the interface machinery, for want of a, a better term, is is even worse than primitive. But, you know, Musk is doing with that what he did with... Um, uh, both battery technology and solar technology and the electric car, he's looking for the low-hanging fruit. And, you know, once he finds a way of, of, of harvesting that, he'll move further up the tree. So, you know, maybe that technology doesn't work out, but that, that box, that Pandora's box has been opened now. And, you know, even if his company collapsed, you know, you can imagine 50, 60, 70 years from now, um, some other company has actually, you know, invented a mesh that can be injected into your cortex. So, you know, you're not putting on big bulky Apple VR glasses anymore. You're just imagining up this world and, and, and falling into it. Um, that's the sort of thing that I, I like to imagine lies in our future. But, you know, I'm, I'm in my 50s. I, I don't, I don't see myself hanging around long enough to uh, to experience that. Well, we have new technology to continue you for another well hundred years. Well, in fact, that's Operation Calico. And that all is that actually stuff. part of that yeah. that thing. Like you know, because if you um, one of the reasons that Musk is developing Neuralink is that he's he's terrified of AI killing us all, and he is convinced it's coming, and you know, there's no stopping it because, you know, it's going to make some people very, very rich. It's going to impoverish millions, possibly billions more as it sort of, you know, destroys economic structures and takes away people's livelihoods. But that doesn't matter because someone's getting rich. Um, (laughs) He is convinced that, you know, it is a a clear and present danger to the future of human civilization. Um, and so he thinks the only way of, of combating it is to set up a rival digital intelligence. And the sort of, I don't know that it's the mission statement of Neuralink, but it's obviously architected into the, the, the purpose is to allow human beings to create their own sentient network by linking their own minds into a sort of gigantic hive mind which in musk's imagination might eventually be able to stave off the depredations of an artificial intelligence um you know it's that that is yeah. so then that's I guess, sci-fi right there yeah so then yeah. <laughs> the adversarial mindset then starts to think oh so there'll be humans intersecting across presumably across some silicon or mm. some sort of uh, interwebbed type of um internet i saw planetary scale internet which transfers our our information to each other and then i guess the ai will then if it's adversarial as musk you know is worried about 
well, then surely we'll be back to zero day code. That'll try and um, the science fiction story would be AI versus, I don't know, um, you and I's, you know, mesh or whatever in our yeah. brains. Well, that, 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 that's yeah. what he's thinking. Um, but, I mean, to, to go back to what you were talking about before, like as soon as you start digitising consciousness and sentience, you raise the prospect of creating a digital copy of a mind state. And at that point, um, you know, people effectively become, uh, well, they can live forever because right. they can continually copy themselves. But then you get into these philosophical questions as, you know, is a copy of you, you, um, and it's, you know, that, that's, I imagine that's a branch of philosophy that will expand a lot in the next hundred years. Because I think like Mark Andreessen at, at Monash talks about framelessness and, you know, the ideas of like, is it, um, is it Borges where the, the person has perfect memory and it takes them a day to remember a day. Mm. And so then you have, there's no outside in the world. Um, everything is sort of frameless and, and contained within, like if you have a simulation of the world itself and you create a data simulation of the world, then it's also, where's the outside in that sort of scenario? Um, uh, uh, where does, like, I guess, like philosophically, it, it, when am I, who am I in terms of, so you are a subject or you have subjectivity, which, you know, way back through Descartes to Plato, there's a philosophical discussion about who, how you identify who you are and how externalised you are from yourself. Mm. So are we heading to some sort of future where indeed we begin to, uh, are we a boot up species for some sort of other fused consciousness, I suppose? I mean, that's getting a bit hippie trippy, isn't it? But um, is that the science fiction future we're heading towards in terms of there'd be less connection for narrative because all everyone will have it is some sort of consciousness or something. Mm. Um, it's beyond my pay grade. Man. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I guess I'm thinking of Ben Get Bratton. a philosopher in. <laughs> so they'll, they'll talk about this for hours. Well, yeah, fair enough. I was thinking of Ben Bratton and like the idea that um, uh, the planet has created its own awareness of itself, I suppose. I mean, when we think about earth rise as a photo, it's like a, Earth taking a photo of itself, mm. and I think Bratness has sort of suggested recently that photograph of the black hole is that uh, that you know that one that was that very yep. strange looking photo um, is an example of the universe photographing its own. Yeah, no, I, I know what he's, he's talking yeah. about. It's like uh, um, you know that that photograph of the black hole is in essence the universe raising itself to consciousness. Right, to see it, yeah, see itself for some mm. reason. So then, what would be the purpose of doing that? I mean, as hominids, we like like to we have narcissists and all those images of our self perception, which I guess provides us capacity to externalize and therefore plan and rationalize in zero day code type of ways. Um, so then, I wonder what the universe would do that for. I don't know that the universe has a purpose. Right, it just. Uh you know, spluttered into existence and, and, you know, here we are. That's, you know, we could, we could very easily wipe ourselves out and it, it, it would go on. Right, exactly. Purposeless. Yeah. Yep. Well. Uh, on that happy yeah. note. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Buy my book. Yeah. <laughs> Available now. Your time is limited. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. 
But this, when will the book finally be like? When is the final instalment of? Because it, it's sort of released in packets, is it? Or uh, yeah, like right. I. Um, one of the things I've learned is people like a, like a complete story. So right. zero day code is a complete story. Right. Um, but you know, although civilization effectively collapses at the end of it, the world doesn't end. So right. I, I come back in. Um, in the second book and, you know, catch up with all of my characters. And it's basically 10 days after the first one. And, and so we see what happens with, uh, with them in that period. And then I, I do have a, I do have a story sort of planned out um, probably for four books. Um, wow, okay. And, you know, I'd like to get them wrapped up uh, pretty quickly. Truth be known, I'd like to get it all wrapped up by early next year. So, oh, so you've written the sequel to the current, yeah. and then you'll be able. To, then you've got to write two, two more. Two more. Yeah. Yep, that's all right. I've plotted it all out. Oh, okay. Yeah, used my scenario training tools. That's right. <laughs> and so, um, is that what you're going back to work on now? What, what's your immediate? Yeah, no, problem? that's. Yeah. Uh, uh, in fact, that's yeah. I, I had the editor ringing me the other day. Where's my manuscript? So you know, I've been gallivanting around. Uh, Canberra the last couple of days when I should have been working on that. So that's our goal down here to to um, uh, sort of derail the rest of the country. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have been derailed since Wednesday. <laughs> right, excellent. That's our plan. All right, well, I better let you um, uh, get that flight um, back to Bruce Land. Bruce Land, <laughs> the deep north, and um, yeah, that. Thanks very much for chatting today. It's great. Oh, thanks for having me in, mate. Yeah, no worries. That's this week's episode of Password123. Don't forget to join me next fortnight for another episode. And for more information, just Google UNSW Canberra Cyber. I'm Tom Sear. Thanks for listening.